The book of Esther, chapter 2. If somebody were to ask you, what's up? Or perhaps, how's it going? What is the common response? I don't need you to give this out loud. But as you think about it, if somebody said, hey, what's up? How's it going? How do you respond? Uh, This week I've been thinking a lot about that. And so given the the nature of what we're studying uh, about Esther and about God's providential moving, I have changed what I plan on saying from here on out. So you guys uh, just check me out on this. When you ask me, how's it going, here is going to be my intended response. I may slip back, but here is my intended response from now on. Everything is proceeding according to plan. Everything is proceeding according to plan. It's happening exactly the way that it was intended to happen. Now, that goes against our nature, doesn't it? Normally, what we do is we either give some glib and and slightly untrue or maybe, maybe majorly untrue, kind of, oh, everything is going okay. You bite your tongue and you know that's really not the truth. Or maybe you you launch into the way things have been going, certain things that have been happening in your life. But if we are really going to answer as believers who know because the Bible tells us that God is always at work, I say the Bible tells us this, Romans chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 1, for from Him and through Him and to Him are how many things? That's the one who works how many things that happened this last week? All things according to the counsel of his will. The secular mindset does not see this. God is not passive, as some would say. God is not sitting on his throne in heaven wringing his hands about what is going on in the world or what is going on in your life. Nothing, according to the Scriptures, happens except by God and through His will. He is actively involved, whether you see Him or not, despite what your outward circumstances might dictate, God is always working in everything. One of the things that I did not mention this last week in the study of the book of Esther that is important to some, I see it all the way through the commentaries, do you realize this is one of several books, two books in the Bible, where God's name is never mentioned, not even once. Some people have said because of that reason that the book of Esther does not belong in the Bible. But I beg to differ. God did put it in the Bible. Now listen, God's name is never mentioned in Esther 
but his fingerprints are on every page. And there are times when you read the Bible and in your own life, you will see God's face plastered everywhere, but when you can't figure it out and you can't see him working in your life, you need to know that just like in the book of Esther, his fingerprints are everywhere. Now, there are two themes. I opened last week one of those themes that's called the providence of God. But let me just do a little bit of a study for you before we get into taking this chapter apart and pulling out some applications from a historical study, okay? This is not allegory. This is history. It's real history. And there are some incredible lessons to learn. So let's go back and do a couple of things. First of all, there are two themes that you see throughout Scripture. I hope you see. The first of all is God's, the first of those is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is the Lord. Now, sovereignty can be defined like this. God's sovereignty is the right and the power to do what He wants to do. It's important. I, I looked for this quote from Job. Job was going through some things in his life, you might say. And it was important for Job to understand God's sovereignty. And he said, God, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God has the right, the authority. He has the power to do what he wants to do. But there's the other thing that we're mentioning that is different than God's sovereignty, and you need to understand this. If this is your first time in this church, this word may be new to you, but we use this along with God's sovereignty all of the time, and it's the word providence. It's not just a town in Rhode Island. God's providence. God's sovereignty, he has the right, the authority, and the power to do what he wants to do. And we're going to see in a minute, it's all good. Providence is the steps that he takes to make his will happen. Again, from the book of Job, who was going through a lot of stuff. And he points to God and he says, but he is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires that he does. Now watch this. For you personally, he will complete what he appoints for me. Do you remember what all went on in Job's life? Job was confident that God had a plan. And he hurt, but he believed that God was going to take whatever steps were necessary to fulfill his plan. And that word providence is a wonderful word. It, it, it comes from a Latin word. If, if you have it on your, if you're taking notes and you've got providence there, put a little line, a little slash between the pro and the vedence. It's two Latin words, pro before, and the word from which we get our word, guess what? Video. 
to see beforehand. And basically, here's what it means. God's providence means this. Whatever his will is for your life, believer, what is his will for your life? That you be conformed to the image of Christ. He's going to, providence, see to it that it's going to be done. Do you understand what, this is all in the book of Esther, by the way. And if you get this, you're going to be assured not only that God has a plan, but he has also appointed steps to accomplish his plan. Sometimes God uses miracles. He did it in Exodus. He did it in the days of Elijah and Elisha. He did it in the days of Christ and the apostles. Sometimes, even today, he uses miracles. There would be a lot of churches here in the land today, and they would be telling you to expect a miracle. And a lot of people go out from preaching like that, and they're looking for their miracle, and they fail to realize that God accomplishes that miracle in the everyday details of life which is the other side called God's providence. Sometimes there are miracles like in Exodus, and sometimes there's just the plain old everyday providence like in the book of Esther. And that in itself is a miracle. How is wine made? I know that may not be an appropriate illustration in a Baptist church, but how is wine made? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let, let's go. If you're going to go to the if you're going to go the miracle route, wine is made by the creator of all things speaking a word, and boom, water becomes wine. Anybody seen that recently? Wine also is made through the provid, listen, the providential means of the fermentation of grape juice to become wine. Is it any less wine? God accomplishes His work in our lives. And listen, folks, we live in this flow of, of history by the circumstances that God controls. You need to hear this, and we're going to see this in a minute and throughout the rest of the study of the book of Esther. God is at much at work in the obvious miracle. Well, let me reverse it. In the providential everyday working of his plan as he is in the big explosive miracles of life. And we can trust him in all of it. Look, at the top of my prayer guide is this verse, because we need to come back to this again and again and again, because some of you are sitting out there and you're thinking, boy, the things that have happened in my life this last week, are you sure, Marty, are you sure that God has a good plan? Look at this, Psalm 62, 11 and 12 is one of the greatest verses that speaks of the fact of God's godness, He is sovereign, and God's goodness, He is love. Once God has spoken twice, 
I have heard that power belongs to God. He is in control. And that you, to you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. People sometimes have a problem with that. I saw an interview this last week. It was a tragedy. Let's don't go political on this. It was, a, it was a tragedy. And Alec Baldwin gave an impromptu interview on the, on the road. And he said something that reminded me of a story. I don't know if this story is true or not, but it illustrates how a Christian can understand God, God's providence and how a non-Christian doesn't. I'm not judging whether Alec Baldwin is a Christian or not. He just doesn't at least in the interview, he didn't give anything that indicated that he, that he was, okay? And here's what he said about the event. Uh, is everybody aware of what happened? Through a real tragedy. We don't know all of the details, but he was behind the gun that shot and killed a person. And here's what he said. I wrote it down. This was, and listen to this, an incidental accident. One in a trillion. A time ago, a young man was killed in an army airplane crash. And the officer that was in charge of the situation was seeking to comfort the mother of the soldier that was killed. And he said almost the same thing. This is the way the world views it. It's impossible for this ever to be repeated. It was a freak accident that could never occur again. No one could have predicted or controlled the events. There is simply no explanation. The mother was a Christian who understood this principle of the providence of God. Listen to her response. Sir, you may not believe that God was in that plane with my son, but I do. I have no idea why God chose to allow this to happen, but I know this was a part of his sovereign purpose and that his hand was in total control of the plane, the weather, and my son's life. So in chapter 1, quick review. God is moving on a global scale through a wicked wicked pagan king, a a self-absorbed king to set up his plan. Now, what is his plan, basically? When you get to the end of it, you're going to see the book of Esther is really about one thing. It's about saving the line of the Messiah. Uh, don't know if you know all about the book, but later on we're going to get to that. And there was a plot to, to wipe out all of the Jews. Do you understand why that was so significant and why God was not going to let that happen? Because Jesus nailed it in John chapter 4, because salvation is of the Jews. If all of the Jews had been wiped out, that probably means Zerubbabel and his bunch in Judea, then there could have been no Messiah. And God's not about to let that happen. And so he providentially 
organizes events in chapter 1 with the, uh, the deposing of Queen Vashti. And now we get to chapter 2, and let's jump into it, the next steps of his plans. Now, he, basically, if there's a theme from chapter 2, uh, it's, it's this. It shatters the common idea that God uses only perfect people to accomplish his plan. Okay, let's jump into it. I'm going to try to read this, and then we've got some points. You see it in the outline? Here we go. After these things, uh, this is three years after chapter 1. King uh, uh, Heresus, or, or Xerxes, that's easier to say, so I'm going to stick with that. He has gone to, to fight a war against Greece. And he's been defeated. So he comes back licking his wounds. You got to get the context for this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, that was the anger that he had against Vashti, his former wife. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This is so interesting. Then the king's young men who attended him, his advisors, said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem, the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is also in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And everybody said, Amen. It would really sound weird unless you understood the context. Let's jump in. God's providence is at work through arrogant and wicked leaders. Uh, I'm going to give a couple of just bullet uh, scriptures from last week so that you can can understand. Here's what I see so far. Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, was basically a puppet. And we see this over and over again. He's faced with a situation. His advisors come around him. He does whatever they want him to do. But guess who not only appointed Xerxes, but also appointed his advisors? God did. From last week, Romans 13 reminds us, there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Daniel reminded of that. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And he always does it with a purpose. Now, I'm going to go back. We mentioned Egypt a minute ago. The Pharaoh, his day, he was the most powerful king, but God had a purpose. Why did God establish Pharaoh in Egypt? He said, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I posed this question last week. I'll pose it again. Are the current leaders in our world good or bad? Are they informed or are they uninformed? Are they puppets of advisors many times? And I hear Christians worrying 
their heads off and wringing their hands as if God does not have a purpose for all of the leaders that He has set in place. Leaders don't set our agenda. Boris Johnson said something at the climate change conference. I could say a lot about that, personal opinion, but I won't. But he said we're like a minute, we've got a minute left on the doomsday clock. Actually, the people who started the doomsday clock said 90 seconds. So you've got a little bit more breathing room than you thought you had in case you read that and you went into panic mode because you've got a minute left on the doomsday clock. Listen, folks, Boris Johnson does not set the appointment for Jesus' return. It won't happen until exactly the right time. There's an old saying, um, I don't know who said it first, Man proposes, but God disposes. Okay? Now, a couple of other verses. We Look at how God used in history the most powerful men in the world, the king of Syria. He says, okay, Assyria, I'm bringing you against the northern, uh, the, the northern king of, kingdom of, of, of Israel. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury against a godless nation. I send, I send him, this is God speaking, of using the king of Assyria. By the way, the king of Assyria was going to be responsible for his actions of brutality. Then later on, he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah. I will send from the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, look what he calls him, this godless pagan king, my servant, because he was using him to punish the southern kingdom of Judah. I could go on, and I will. Isaiah chapter 44, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. You are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. But, but this is what we talked about in Ezra, where Cyrus is raised up to send back the Jews to rebuild the temple. Have you ever prayed, Lord, are you hearing us? Have you? Look, look at the godlessness that's going on. Habakkuk did the same thing. We won't go there, but in Habakkuk 1, you just write it down and read it. Uh, because he, he's, he's throwing up his hands and he's saying, Lord, wh what, is, what is the deal here? Godless men are abounding. And later on the Lord says, look, I'm doing a work that you would not believe if it were told to you. I'm raising up these foreign powers to come against you. I think Habakkuk probably didn't like that answer very much. I wrote it down. I don't know that it's a parallel. Christians cry out for deliverance because of the wickedness going on around them. What if God said to us, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told, I am raising up the Chinese? Would we like that? God moves 
whom he wills to accomplish his purposes. Xerxes had no intention of doing the will of God. But God would see to it that he would. And he listened to his advisors. Now, by the way, again, he was 100% responsible. So are we. We'll get to this in just a minute, this just kind of a preview. Don't ever blame your bad choices on the providence of God. Oh, I couldn't help it. God foreordained that I would fill in blank. No. He foreordains, but we are responsible. Look at this. Even in the most despicable situation ever to face human history, the crucifixion of Christ, this was done by the definite plan and foreknowledge, foreknowledge of God, but there were evil and wicked men that saw to it that it would be accomplished. You got that? Second thing. Okay, let's move a little bit further. Oh, so he's going to listen to his advisors. And we're introduced to two people, Mordecai and Esther. Hadassah. The only time her Jewish name is used is here in this little passage. So let's look at this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, this sets up a, a conflict that happens in chapter 3, but you've got to come back next week for that. Who had been carried away, not, not him, but his forefathers, from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away for, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Here is this teenaged, orphan, nobody Jew. The young woman had a beautiful figure. God had so created her DNA. I got a word to say about that in a minute. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. Now, God's providence works through weak and disadvantaged people. So who's God going to pick to be the Savior of the Jews? A great warrior, a giant slayer, how about a teenage orphan Jewish girl, chapter 3 said they were despised, the Jews were despised, that just so happened to be good looking and have a good figure. Again, her name was Hadassah, Esther was her Persian name, her cousin Mordecai, Again, that's going to set up some, some things that happen later. But here, here is the thing that I believe that we need to see out of this passage of Scripture. That God delights in taking the things that are nothing in our eyes and doing something with them. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and 
despised, that's the word that is used of her in, or her in chapter uh, 3, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, now watch this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's not looking for celebrities. He's looking for people who don't have any advantage so that He can work in them and through them and he gets the glory. Let's look at the third thing. Now, this is a little bit longer. Stick with me. It gets interesting here. Verse 8. We're going to see this, that God's providence is at work through compromising and flawed believers. Hang on to your hats. I'm talking about Esther and Mordecai. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. A little bit of the character, I think, shows through here. We don't know exactly. Pleased him and won his favor. Maybe it was because she was good looking and had a good figure. We're just, reading, we're just reading the Scripture, okay? And he quickly provided her, this is interesting, with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, one for every day of the week, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. You understand what a harem is? Okay? Look it up if you don't understand. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. She had hid, hidden the fact that she was Jewish, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and was, what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman, we're just going to read this, to go into the king, King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months? I have no idea what this really looks like. Six months with oil of myrrh. Maybe she just spent six months in a bathtub filled with oil of myrrh. And six months, she's not done with spices and ointments for women. No old spice here. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shehashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Do you see the change? She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by that by name. When the turn, ca turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king, he liked having parties. 
gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast, and he granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Paul says when we are faithless, he is faithful. Okay. God used Mordecai and Esther, but make no mistake. I think just in reading this, there are some disturbing things going on. It seems that as I've looked at this and rethought it and rethought it, that God used them in spite of what seems to be compromise. Now, you weren't here when we talked about Ezra and God calling the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Not everybody went. Some stayed. Why? We don't know. Mordecai and Esther stayed. Were they, were they so assimilated into the Babylonian culture? Were they so comfortable in Babylon that they just didn't hear the call of God to go back? I don't know. But the thing that we need to see is they were really supposed to be back in Jerusalem. And they weren't. Second thing, wow. Don't try to idealize Esther. This is not a Miss Persia contest. This is not a Cinderella story or even a Beauty and the Beast story. There, there, was, no, there, there was no opt out of this. And the only three qualifications that were given to the king. We see what kind of guy he was. By the way, guys, you know what I've shared with you? We all deal with the three G's, don't we? Boy, did King Xerxes. Three G's. Gold, glory, and girls. I... The, the, uh, the, he only had, th he, nothing about her character, he only had three qualifications of all of these women, that they be young, beautiful, and virgins. And she, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It doesn't say. But apparently, that, that's why I say don't idealize her. Daniel and his three friends at least said, uh, we have certain regulations we can't do certain things under the threat of death. Esther was taken into the harem, given those things, and assimilated into the life of the harem. What I'm trying to say to you is at this point, at this point, come back in the chapters to come, don't idealize Esther. Don't do what some people do. Don't say to your daughters, dare to be an Esther. At this point, nothing at this point paints her as a young woman, a teenager, to be copied. She was taken into the harem. I don't know that she understood 
what was at stake. Again, do you know what a harem is? When we have visited in Turkey, in Istanbul, the Topkapi Palace, and the Ottomans had this kind of arrangement up, we don't know exactly how late, but at least through the 1700s, you, you, can, you can go into the harem. It means protected place where all of the women went who were consorts of the king. Something that I, I slowed down when I read this a few minutes ago, if you'll notice, she was taken out of the original harem for all of the young ladies, the virgins, and when she was brought back after her night with the king, she was put into the harem, the part of the harem with the concubines. I'll leave it with you. Don't explain more to your children than what they ask, okay? What I'm saying is that Esther at this point, listen to me, was no paragon of virtue. She became the wife of a pagan king. Jews were not supposed to do that. Now, please understand, I'm not running her down. I'm just simply sharing facts about Esther. The story gives no insight into how she might have been feeling about this. But the point of the story at this juncture is not to use Esther as an example. Later on, she is going to stand in the gap. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that. So what do we do? I Listen. I told somebody this last week, this could be the mo one of the most difficult sermons I've ever preached. How do we understand this? Well, one thing that we don't want to do is what Paul said, don't continue in sin that grace might abound. And then again, the apostle Paul said, such were some of you. Listen, I believe this is the point of this particular passage that God and His divine providence can use those who have come out of compromised and flawed backgrounds. And there are some here today that are probably saying, you know, I might be able to be used by God if only, if only I hadn't done. I, I've quoted him before, but one of my favorite quotes is Urban Lutzer, and, and I want you to look at it for a minute. And some of you really, really need to hear this. Let me encourage you to take those if onlys. And I, I don't care what it is. It could be a past choice that was a really bad choice. It could be something where you were wronged. It could be something that has just happened. It could be an illness. It could be any number of things. But let me encourage you, Lutzer says, to take those if-onlys that are holding you back and draw a circle around them. Then label the circle the providence of God. The Christian believes that God is greater than our if-onlys. His providential hand encompasses the whole of our lives, not just the good days, but the bad ones too. We have the word accident in our vocabulary. God 
does not. Don't live your life constantly looking back. As one of our pastors said a week or so ago, into the rearview mirror. By the providence of God, He has allowed you to go through whatever you have gone through, not with the permission to continue to sin, but with the promise of hope if you have. Sin. Well, what if you are the victim? That's the last point in my message today. And we get to come back next week because this fits into chapter 3, verses 2, 19 through 23. Totally different story, okay? We're through with Esther. I mean, for the time being. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, he told it to the Queen Esther. Queen told the king, in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Uh, you'll, you'll see a, a, a cross-reference there, impaled on a stake. One or the other, neither one was very good. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What about in God's providence? And here's what happened. Another guy was raised up. Mordecai was overlooked. Is God's providence at work even when you've been unfaired against? Yeah. And there are people sitting in here who have been absolutely devastated by the actions or the inactions, as it is right here, of others. You've been overlooked. You've, you've been unfairly treated. Now, the good thing about it is it was written down. We're going to come back to that. But here is the key that we need to know. We know that for those who love God, all things, even the injustices of life, work together for good. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We just never know how things are going to fit together, do we? One last story. Is it okay to finish with a story that illustrates this? Some of you have heard this story. It's a great story. Just listen to it again. There was once an old man who lived in a kingdom and owned a beautiful horse. His horse was the envy of everyone, including the king. The king offered fantastic sums of money to buy the horse, but the, the man said, I, I can't sell the horse. How can I sell the horse? I, the, the, he's a part of the family. You can't sell the horse. He was poor. The townspeople said, you need to sell the horse, so you, you're not poor anymore. Well, one day he woke up. Guess what? The horse had gotten out of the stall. It was gone 
The townspeople came and they said, you're a fool. Look at what's happened now. You should have sold that horse. You've been cursed because the horse is gone. The old man wisely said, don't say whether I'm cursed or blessed. All you can say is that the horse is gone. Don't judge appearances. Well, seven days later, one week later, the horse came back with seven horses as beautiful as it was. The townspeople came and said, oh, we were wrong. You haven't been cursed at all. You've been blessed. Now you can just sell the horses and you won't be poor anymore. And the man said, why do you make judgments? All we have is a fragment. All you can say is that the horse that was gone has come back and brought seven more with it. Sure enough, while the horses were being broken, his one and only son fell off one of the horses and broke both legs. People of the town came and said, ah, you're right again. This was not a blessing. This was a curse. Your only son who could help you now is incapacitated. And he said, why? Why do you make judgments? All we have is a fragment. All you can say is my son fell off the horse and broke his legs. And a week later, the country went to war. And all of the young men were called up to go and face a powerful enemy, which meant certain death for all of those young men except for the old man's son because his legs were broken. Well, again, the people came and said, oh, you were right, we see. What we thought was a curse was actually a blessing. And he finally said, you people, you foolish, foolish people, quit making, listen to this, judgments over the fragment of life that you have right now. You do not know what will happen. Now, that story is not a Christian story, but the providence of God guarantees that no matter, listen, the fragment, the little slice of time that you're in right now, God has worked it as a part of your life so that he can be glorified in you And he's done it for your benefit as well. Do you understand it? Is it a blessing or is it a curse? All you can say is it's a fragment. Trust that God is God and God is good. Father, I thank you that your word surrounds us with the truth I pray that today we were able to get some of that truth into our hearts that would lead us to life transformation. But as Andrew said at the very beginning, Lord, that transformation will not happen without a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what everyone in this room needs today. So I pray in the name of Jesus that if there is anyone here who has never seen their sins as an affront to a holy God, and they've never seen that Christ crucified is the only answer that today they would see it. Their eyes would be open. 
that they would turn away from sin and embrace Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior and begin that work of transformation. Lord, help those of us who know you to begin living out of the reality that you are God and you are good and you are ordering events in our life for your glory and so that we can be used by you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.